Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you this morning and we are so grateful, Lord, for who you are. Lord, for the fact that uh, you in your infinite wisdom, Lord, in your eternality have set forth the plan of salvation. Lord, that you have uh, brought into existence all things that are in existence through your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord, who is the second person in the Trinity. Lord, we understand more and more as we look at the Scripture uh, how true and how important this is, Lord, to us and to everything else that we believe. Lord, we start seeing more and more as your Spirit reveals it to us, and we are grateful for this. Lord, we ask this morning that you would continue that enlightenment, Lord, to our eyes. Lord, that you would grant us understanding as we look into your Word. Uh, Lord, that we would have clarity of thought around these topics. Lord, that we would understand them, and Lord, that we would also be able to give a defense of these truths. Lord, that this is critical. Lord, grant us this understanding, we ask, Lord, in humility. Thank you again for the opportunity to gather, and we commit our time to you this morning. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Okay, uh, quick kind of housekeeping announcement here. Uh, first of all, it's really good to see so many faces back the second week you teach. Uh, okay, uh, so we didn't know. Man, Ooh. wow. Well, thank you. Yeah, poor Ryan. Yeah. Well, that's all right. I'm praying for you all. Okay. The, the other thing is, is that uh, several of you came in this morning and said, hey, is there a new handout? And yes, there is. And uh, we had uh, some kind of a miscommunication, uh, so I apologize for that. But uh, I have my study notes along with Sean's outline, uh, his page, I believe it's uh, 12 and 13 is what it would be in your, your binders. Double check me on that. We went through 11. Okay, you guys don't have 13. No. So, so here's what this looks like. Sean had given me that information, and uh, we, yeah, we thought that it was here. We thought that it was going to be printed. And again, there's just a miscommunication. So what you have in front of you or is being handed out to you right now is the packet. Uh, you have the advantage of having my own study notes and commentary on Sean's section. And so that's what we're going to go over today. And I will make sure that we get you Sean's kind of cleaner copy as well with all the correct page numbers so that it fits back in your binder. Uh, but we're going to go through these uh, five pages, Lord willing, this morning and talk about this content here. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. Well, that said, you'll be able to pretty much follow right along with me because I'm going to talk a bit about uh, everything that's on here. Uh, so you'll see here, uh, I want to begin by doing a review of what we talked about last week and get, again, kind of a, a running start, get some context for where we're going this morning. And what you'll see is uh, the first thing that we talked about last week, one of the primary points, was that Christ claimed pre-existence, right? We saw that he claimed to be before Abraham, and we saw that in John 8.58. It is also said of Christ in Colossians 1.17, which we spent quite a bit of time looking at, that he was before all things, which of course directly speaks to his pre-existence. In addition to that, that he holds all things together. And so his omnipotence is um, shown to us there. And of course, this can only be, uh, this attribute can only be ascribed to uh, God himself, that he would have sustaining power, omnipotence, uh, as well as pre-existence. Okay, so laying the foundation there in Christ's pre-existence. Uh, one of the other things that we looked at was uh, to kind of, again, just add, um, you know, support to this claim of Christ's pre-existence was that Christ came down from heaven. And Christ claimed this several places. We have John 3.13, John 3.31, John 6.38. All of those are in last week's handout. And there we see that he existed as the second person of the triune God for all of eternity past, prior to creation. Right. Uh, in addition, Christ also expounded on that in John 17.5 where he says, And now glorify thou me, together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Okay, so not only did Christ pre-exist 
prior to creation, and we also looked at the fact that it was through Christ that creation came into being. But we also see here that he expounds on that and says, I also was in glory with the Father and the Spirit prior to this um, you know, creation of things. So we see Christ in his preexistence. Also, the, the nature of his preexistence was in glory with the Father. Okay? So a, a completely uh, blatant claim to possess the same glory as God before creation. Uh, we also talked a bit about the fact that uh, a claim like this would not have been made would not have been made by just a good teacher, right? Someone would not have come out and said, "Yes, I am God," and we would not say that he is a good teacher if indeed he were not God himself, okay? So, uh Christ in his pre-existence there. Uh thirdly, we also talked briefly about some of the heresies that directly attack this doctrine of the nature of Christ. Uh, in particular, his, his pre-existence and his deity. There are many ways this aberrant thought shows itself, but the one we spoke directly to last Sunday uh, a bit was Jehovah's Witnesses who claim that Christ was a created being. He was not eternal God in, in the same sense that we see in Scripture that he's portrayed. Okay? They talk about him being Michael the Archangel, not God incarnate. Uh, this point in particular, we're going to kind of use this to springboard a bit into what we're looking at uh, throughout the rest of today. And I found a little bit more information that I wanted to share with you all, kind of an addendum to this point last week. And uh, you'll see in Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, the purpose of that letter was to battle, or one of the purposes, was to battle this aberrant idea uh, that Jesus was not indeed the God-man. On this, MacArthur comments, several years after the Colossian church was founded, a dangerous heresy arose to threaten it. One not identified with any particular historical system, it contained elements of what later became known as Gnosticism. And I know that a lot of us are familiar with kind of that idea. Gnosticism states that God is good, but matter is evil. That Jesus Christ was merely one of a series of emanations descending from God, and he was less than God. So uh, this ended up leading them to also question and uh, deny Christ's humanity because they saw that matter was evil. So how could you know, God possibly come in the form of matter because matter is evil and that would be contrary to what God is like. So you can see the slippery slope that we get on when we deny the deity of Christ. Right? As soon as we deny the deity, the next thing to go is the humanity of Christ. And if Christ is not the God-man then what hope do we have? Okay. Uh, in addition to that, they also felt that a secret higher knowledge above Scripture was necessary for enlightenment and salvation. Okay, And we see this replete all over the place nowadays with all kinds of you know, esoteric thoughts about how you know, we need to be enlightened and all these things, and, and the Scripture just simply doesn't bear that out. So, we see this heresy directly dealt with by Paul in the first verses of chapter 1 of Colossians, which we looked at last week, as well as in chapter 2, in particular verse 9, which we're going to look at a bit more today. So, what do we draw from all of this? Well, chiefly, it conveys that the first century church apostles were encountering the same heresies that we encounter today. Okay, There is nothing new under the sun. Okay? Um, so the reason for this simple is simple and it makes logical sense. The deity of Christ is the foundation for both our understanding of God as he truly is, as well as for the work of salvation. If this link in the chain is broken, the whole thing falls apart. Okay, And you could draw so many uh, further uh, ideas about this. Of course, if, if Christ is not the God-man, then how could he have died on the cross and paid the, the price for our sins, right? How could he have properly and completely appeased God's uh, justice and wrath? Certainly he could not have. In addition to that, he certainly couldn't have raised himself from the dead, right? And what does Paul say? That if Christ is not risen, we are to be pitied most of all, right? Because our faith means nothing if Christ is not risen, okay? All of those things have their foundation in the character and nature of the God-man, Jesus Christ. So these are critical things. Uh, this is not a debatable issue. It wasn't for the first century church. 
It certainly wasn't for Paul, and it cannot be for us. So that said, we're going to go in and look more at the deity of Christ this morning. So take a look at the next page there. Uh, By the way, what you'll notice in your handouts you have this morning is that everything that's underlined is Sean's. Everything that is not is mine. That's how I know what I'm saying uh, (laughs) versus what Sean's saying. So there you have it. Okay, so this is what will be on your handout that you get next week as well. So the deity of Christ, what does the Bible say? Well, it is no surprise to someone who has read the New Testament that Jesus is affirmed in Scripture as God himself. Indeed, anyone who embraces the Trinity, that is, that God is one being expressed in three persons, would affirm this teaching. Jesus is God the Son, the second member of the Godhead, with all of the divine attributes of God. This is explicitly taught in Colossians 2.9. Okay, and we've got Colossians 2.9 right there, which says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Okay? I went in and I looked at Colossians, and I looked at uh, some you know, word studies. I went in and I looked at some commentaries. And the thing that I can tell you is that uh, this is one of the most clear passages in Scripture that identifies the nature of Christ. There is no hidden meaning in, for in him, Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Okay, uh, We could go in and spend a bit of time expositing that, but uh, I would submit to you that that is crystal clear. Okay, In him, Christ, all, Okay, the Greek word for that means all, all Okay, the fullness of deity dwells. Okay, uh, The word that they use for deity there is uh, the word that we see all throughout the rest of uh, the New Testament that speaks of the divinity of God, the nature of God. Okay, So, very, very clear. Um, in seeking then a biblical understanding of Jesus, let us consider that Jesus is not just a man, but indeed the God-man. As we have stated already, he is fully man and fully God. The Bible teaches that he is God in the flesh and makes emphatic and explicit statements about Christ's deity, using the term theos, or God, to speak of him. Okay, uh, We're going to look at some examples of this now. Uh, you'll see John 1, 1 through 2. And we looked at this last week a bit. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Okay, um, Very clear. You know, I don't want to belabor what we talked about last week, but again, these things are so clear in Scripture. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Okay, Very clear statements about Christ and the nature of his preexistence as well as his equality uh, with God. Uh, Titus 2.13 uh, Looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay. This passage in particular is interesting and it's unique because we see here that uh, we, we have this description of Christ, of Jesus Christ, as the great God and Savior. Okay. So talking about two particular um, functions right, of Jesus Christ or two elements of his nature, he is our great God okay? uh, and he is our Savior. Okay. Think about that in terms of the entire uh, salvific plan and that God before the creation of the world uh, in you know the Trinity had uh, I have to be careful the terms I use here certainly hadn't created but had known right in one Sean talks about this right in one uh, single moment one single act of knowledge right God has known this from all eternity past that uh, salvation would indeed come from God alone okay so uh Christ spoken of here as God, Theos, as well as our Savior. Okay? Uh, by the way, these verses are um, prime uh, verses to be able to talk with someone who does not affirm the deity of Christ. Okay? It's the whole reason why we're looking at these things, right? so that certainly we would have our own understanding, but also that we're going to come in contact with people who do not affirm the deity of Christ. Okay? And like Sean has been harping on, Right? The Bible is our source of truth. So when we go and we're having a discussion with someone, we have to fight that urge to get in this kind of you know, um, you know, 
these esoteric discussions about, well, yeah, there's this and that. Uh, there was an interesting thing I heard in a message the other day, and it was the fact that when you look in Scripture, we never see the, the argument being made for um, you know, God's existence, for uh, the deity of Christ. We never see these things being made on this philosophical level. Right? The assumption is God is God. He exists. This is who he is. Okay? And this speaks to the fact that it is the Spirit of God that brings this understanding to the hearts and minds of men. Okay? We certainly should have an understanding of these things, but we're not going to be able to philosophically argue someone into an understanding of the fact that God is existent and that Christ, of course, is part of that eternally existent God. That is the work of the Spirit of God. Amen? Amen. All right, so um, we should have our discussions with people with that in mind. We should understand that we're not the ones who are having to bring this enlightenment. We need to know the scripture. The Lord is, what's, is, is who's bringing the harvest there. Okay, so uh, Titus 2.13, looked at that. All right, uh, Romans 9.5, another verse we're going to look at. Uh, speaking of here, the Israelite people, uh, just to get a little bit of kind of background there. As a matter of fact, why don't you all turn, because I, I think it makes a little more sense if we read this Romans verse uh, from the beginning of the chapter. Go back to Romans 9. Just start in chapter 1 there. Romans 9, beginning chapter 1. Okay. So, here we have uh, Romans 9, 1. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are the Israelites. Okay, So here we have Paul talking about the Israelites and, and talking about his great burden for them to understand and to come to a knowledge of who Christ truly is. Uh, so who are the Israelites? To whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple uh, service and the promises? Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all God blessed forever? Amen. Okay, so Paul here is drawing out this idea of, of course, speaking to the Israelites Right in one passage, we see that uh, Christ, who according to the flesh, is from Israel, right? He, it, is, it is from the Jews that Christ has come. Okay, and he's affirming this. Then he's also, in the next part of this verse, saying, who is over all, which we'll talk about in a moment, that means over all things, okay? It doesn't, uh, it doesn't mean that he is, you know, overall, he's, you know, a good guy. It means that he is over all things. And in addition... He has the title of God, who is blessed forever. Amen. Okay? So, this verse in Romans uh, can be and has been taken by those who deny the deity of Christ, that Christ is over all other created beings, and blessed by God. Two separate thoughts there. Okay? This, however, is not at all what the passage means. A basic look at the words and structure of the text bears out a clear meaning. Charles Hodge has commentary on this that I want to share with you all. And if you all ever want to get into some deep waters, read some Charles Hodge. Okay? Uh, there is but one interpretation of this important passage, which can be, with the least regard to the rules of construction, be maintained. Okay? So here's what Hodge is saying up front. Right? If, if we just took a cursory reading of this, and we, in the very least, applied basic uh, rules of construction to how this you know, passage is actually put together, we can only draw one logical conclusion. And that is, the words used for over all are, Hodge says, equivalent here to over all things, not all persons. So here's what he's saying of Christ. Christ is over all things. Right? We can see that, and we look back at the verses that we looked at last week in his preexistence, of course, that through Christ all things were created. It makes sense then that Christ is over all of his own creation. Okay? So, his deity there. It is supremacy over the universe that is expressed here. And therefore, this language precludes the possibility of being taken in any subordinate sense. 
Paul evidently declares that Christ, who he had just said was as to his human nature, or as a man descended from the Israelites, is in another respect the supreme God, or God over all and blessed forever. Okay, so what do we see from this? A very clear picture of the nature of Christ in his divinity and as well as in his humanity. Okay, so very, very clear statements here about the divinity of Christ. Okay, is that making sense? Okay. Uh, continuing on, let's look at a few more verses here. Uh, John twenty twenty eight, And we see here, Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Very, very clear. He is uh, ascribing to Christ that Christ is his Lord and his God. Okay? Again, we see this word used here as theos, uh, the word that we see used for God himself. Uh, in addition, by the way, this is... Um, this is my own commentary, so take it for what it's worth. But we see people uh, who deny the claims of Christ as being divine, and we see them taking passages just like all these that we're looking at right now, right? This one in particular. And they apply these bizarre um, ideas of interpreting a very basic and clear passage to fit within the frame of reference that they're coming from, okay? We have to be so cautious about that. You know, there are those who would say, my Lord and, you know, my God, as if that was some kind of, you know, uh, you know, just this statement of awe, but not actually a title that he's ascribing to Christ. And that is so far from what the scripture plainly says. Okay, so um, be aware uh, when we're reading scripture to make sure we're interpreting it correctly. Uh, another one here, we're going to spend a little bit more time in Hebrews this morning, by the way, but Hebrews 1, verse 8 says, But the Son, but of the Son, he says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Okay? So here the writer of Hebrews uh, ascribes the fact that God is speaking, God the Father is speaking of the Son in these terms, Thy throne, O God. Okay? The Son is God. Okay? He, he is the incarnate God-man. Uh, and he talks about the nature of the, the Son and of his throne, his reign. Right? It's forever and ever. Uh, the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Okay? Uh, here, we'll look at this a little bit later, but um, the writer of Hebrews is looking back to the Old Testament and he's drawing the Old Testament in and he's saying, the Old Testament even spoke of Christ this way. Okay? The, the old and the new are now married. Okay? This is the, the, the plan of God just being uh, laid out throughout all of history. Okay, So, uh, Hebrews. We're going to spend a little more time on those first verses uh, a little bit later here. Another verse here, 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay? Um, I don't want to belabor this, but you see it replete throughout Scripture. Christ is referred to as Lord and God. The nature of his godhood is described as eternal. He is righteous. He has the same attributes that God the Father, uh, that Jehovah, which we'll talk about in a little bit, has been ascribed all throughout the Old Testament. Okay? It's very clear that God uh, is Christ and Christ God. Okay? At times, when referring to Jesus, the Bible uses names of God to refer to Christ. An example of this in the Old Testament is in Isaiah 9, where the coming Christ child is spoken of as the mighty God and eternal Father. Uh, see also Isaiah 43 and Micah 5.2. So a couple of other Old Testament passages there um, that I'm going to let you all go to and kind of look at on your own. But we have Isaiah 9.6 here, which says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Okay. Uh, you might also note here, as Sean has it, that John 12:41 speaks of Christ, or speaks of uh, John speaks of Isaiah's vision of God in chapter six as a vision of the exalted Christ upon his throne 
in heavenly glory. Okay, this is huge. Okay, when we start looking at the Old Testament and the New, and we start seeing how they dovetail together, it is such a beautiful picture of just the um, the beauty of God. The, I mean, almost for lack of a better term, just the poetry of God's plan, right, as it fits together. Isaiah six one through three. In the year of King Uzziah uh, of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Okay? Um, anytime I read in Isaiah, I'm reminded of how uh, we, are, we are not, God is not like us. Okay? We see this description, and we see that here the seraphim stand above him, right? And they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, okay? For, for all of eternity past and all of eternity future, they are ascribing glory and worth to God because it's due him. So with that picture in mind of just the, the highness, the, the otherliness of God, as we see described in Isaiah here, we look at a passage in John, which is our John 12:14, or I'm sorry, John 12:41, and the text it makes reference to is Isaiah chapter six. Okay, so the verse we just read, John is talking about uh, in verse uh, or chapter 12. We see the plan of God to show Christ's deity laid out beautifully by the Holy Spirit, as He inspired both of these authors. Uh, Barnes on this passage writes. The whole discourse has respect to the Lord Jesus, and the natural construction of the passage requires us to refer it to him. John affirms that it was the glory of the Messiah that Isaiah saw, and yet Isaiah affirms that it was Jehovah. And from this, the inference is irresistible that John regarded Jesus as the Jehovah whom Isaiah saw. The name Jehovah is never in the scriptures applied to a man or an angel or to any creature. Okay, Take note of that. It is the peculiar, incommunicable name of God. So great was the reverence of the Jews for the name, this name Jehovah, that they would not even pronounce it. This passage is therefore conclusive proof that Christ is equal with the Father. Consider that for a moment. You know, John, looking back, and now, of course, having the... um, you know, the unique prerogative of having known Christ in the flesh, right? And having seen him and experienced him can look back and after having spent time with the Savior and, of course, as led by the Holy Spirit, can look back and say what Isaiah was talking about here in chapter 6, right? Not that they had chapters back then, but that he saw Isaiah says this and this, he has the Savior in view. He has Christ, And he is equating these two and saying they are indeed one together, right? In the Trinity, the triune God. Um, It's also interesting in light of what we talked about a little bit last week when we look at some of these these errant ideas, right? These heresies that are out there that, um, you know, ascribe so many other things to Christ that are just uh, unbased and untrue of him. That, you know, Christ was, um, you know, according to some cults, that he was, you know, the... Michael the Archangel, right? He was this created creature, this being that now you know, somehow God has um, you know, incarnated and put into some kind of emanation on the earth. We see here, uh, this uh, in Barnes's commentary, talks about the fact that the name that is used here is never ever applied to a created creature, right? Uh, not to an angel, right? So it, we have a big problem then if we look at this and we realize that John is saying Isaiah 6 talks about Christ, Right? And Jehovah's Witnesses say, well, you know, Christ was really just Michael the Archangel incarnate. Well, that is, those, those two don't mix, okay? They, they cannot both be true. So uh, consider these things. Look into these things uh, on your own as well. So continuing on, in many places, the term Lord is referred to or is used to refer to Jesus. This term Lord is known in the Old Testament as the very title of God himself. A translation of the word Yahweh or Jehovah. In Greek, the term is Kyrios. 
and can be used of a polite greeting or as the title denoting authority. But in these passages, speaking of Jesus, the term implies the very title of God. So, let's look at some of these passages as well. Okay? Uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 11. For today in the city of David, there has been born to you, or for you, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Okay? So here we see the use of this word uh, of Lord as, uh, in its context, this divine authority. Uh, Matthew 22, verse 41 through 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord saith to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I put thine enemies beneath thy feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him in a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to, answer, to ask a question of him either. Okay? Such an interesting thing here, right? So we have Christ here himself speaking of uh, his own nature as God, right? So um, he says to them, So how does then David call him in the Spirit Lord? You know, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Okay? Uh, Christ here is drawing out and, and saying, who do you say that I am? Who is the Christ? Well, we, we say he's the son of David. Right? Christ's response to them is, well, how then can what David has said uh, you know, be applied thusly? And so the, the, the people who are here, as they're sitting here, they're just spellbound. Right? They're, they're dumbfounded. They can't say anything. They don't know how to answer the question. And I think it's so interesting there that it says that they didn't ask him anything else. You know? Um, that Christ was so, um, uh, just in his omnipotence, and his, his omniscience, knew what was going on, knew exactly how to interact with these people. Um, and to draw out the fact that, you know what? These are things that, in the flesh, you cannot understand. You have to understand these things in the Spirit. And that's granted by God himself. Okay? Um, incredible passage there as Christ himself is making these claims. Uh, continuing on, you'll see 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Okay? We just talked about that this morning, Right? The fact that it is the Spirit that grants this understanding. Okay? No one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit of God. Okay? So how does this affect then? I was thinking about that, um, this very thing this last week as I was preparing and thinking about you know, just the course of my own life. What does this mean in terms of how we interact with the unsaved? When we're ministering to those around us, when we're trying to convey to them the truth of the gospel, right? which is, of course, what this whole study is about, what does this mean to us in these interactions? I don't know about you all, but I have a struggle. And my struggle is in my own pride. I think that, you know, I, I can really throw out some really great arguments. I can really, you know, try and convince somebody, you know, very well. And I try and think about, you know, yeah, and, and there's, there's a part of me that I have to wrestle with all the time that thinks somehow, you know, that the Lord is so privileged to be able to use me, you know, in conveying his truth to others. And God help me, because there is nothing further from the truth. It is entirely um, incumbent on us to know the scripture. We should be able to give a defense of these truths. We should be able to explain these things clearly to those that we come in contact with and concisely, right? Um, you know, we look at these things and here we are, a body of believers, and we're looking at these things a whole lot more in depth, right? Looking at all these passages. You may not have somebody who you're interacting with that, you know, at this point needs to go into the depth of all of this, right? If we're talking to them about just a basic understanding of God and who Christ is and what salvation means, we can simplify this a whole lot more. But it's the Lord who brings the harvest. It's not our fancy words. It's not... Uh, you know, 
Christ here, in so many cases, you look at how Christ interacted with these people, and he was very uh, concise, he was very blunt at times, and yet he understood the nature of salvation was that God, uh, the Holy Spirit, was the one who was granting that understanding. Yeah. Amen. You bet. You bet. Right. Amen. Uh, for the purposes of the recording, I want to catch a little bit of that. Uh, just the fact that, um, you know, when we're sharing with people, that 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 kindness, that mercy, that gentleness, uh, that we're not you know, driving them away by being so harsh, but that we're sharing the truth in love. Um, and so critical. Um, you know, there are times where I know uh, there are those of you out there who are sharing your faith, uh, and there's this, there's this battle where you're thinking, I gotta, I gotta just go and share it, and you know, the truth is the truth, and you know, man, you're going to hell, you know, if you don't know this. And while granted that is, that is true, and there's a time for, um, for a very um, forthright conversation, and that is part of the gospel. You know what? Uh, I'm going to get off on some rabbit trails here. How much time do we have? Um, the As we share the gospel, I was talking to uh, Stace, my wife, about this earlier this last week, actually. As we share the gospel with people, we need to uh, consider the powerful apologetic of sin and the nature of man and his, his sinfulness. And I think oftentimes when we share the gospel, right, we in trying sometimes to be loving and to be kind, we lack some of the, um, the forthrightness about the nature of human beings and about their own sin. And if you look at the scripture, the scripture is so clear. You read anything in Romans, you read uh, all of the interactions that Christ had with people, and he's talking about their eternal you know, um, state. He's talking about the fact that there is sin. And sin, all of us have it, and that is what the wrath of God is coming for, is sin. Okay? And uh, you know, I would submit to you that in our interactions with people as we're sharing the gospel with them, that a good part of your conversation should be about sin. It should be about sin. Because if I don't have an understanding of sin, then what am I getting saved from? Amen? You know, there are so many gospels out there that are floating around that... Uh, are not true biblical gospels because we're talking about and we're trying to you know convey to people you know the the wonderful uh, love and the peace and all these wonderful byproducts of salvation and we we just we get on this sales pitch where that's all we're talking about and those things are true right amen those things are true but those things are only true when you have a true saving faith and you can only have a true saving faith when you understand the state of your own sinfulness, and you fall before the Lord and ask for His forgiveness. Amen? So, all right, there's my rabbit trail for the morning, okay? Uh, thank you. Appreciate that. By the way, if I'm just burning through things and you guys have something, shoot your hands up and I'll make sure we catch it. All right, so uh, let's see. We just talked about, um, what, Matthew, right? Uh, Corinthians, thank you, Corinthians. Uh, 12, 3. Let's take a look at another one. We have Revelation 9, 16. And uh, on his robe and on his, on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Of course, who is this speaking of? Jesus, right? So uh, here we have in John's Revelation, this description of Christ, who is uh, eternally robed, you know, figuratively as well as literally here, with this title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Okay? He is, I am, before Abraham was. Okay? That is the Lord. Uh, there are also clear passages in the New Testament speaking of Jesus Christ as the very image of God. That is, the physical, visible image of God in human flesh. Colossians 1.15, which we spent a little bit of time uh, in Colossians last week, states, and he is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn of all creation. Um, talks a bit in Colossians there. Uh, interesting the terms that it uses in that passage uh, to describe Christ. It talks about this image. This uh, the word there used is this um, this this icon, this stamp. Right. We'll look at a little bit more of that a little bit later on. But uh, we have the invisible God who has not been seen by anyone. Right. And lived. And then we have Christ incarnate, who indeed has been seen, right? He's the image of God. Second uh, Corinthians, uh, chapter four, verse four. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Okay. Just to go back real quickly to what we talked about a moment ago. 2 Corinthians is very clear about the nature of those who uh, do not believe, of the unbelieving, right? And uh, we've talked last week, and Sean's talked about it in prior weeks, that it is this Christology, right, that defines the believer and the unbeliever. It is how we see Christ. It is who we believe and say that he is. And here in Corinthians, it says that, you know, they have been blinded, right? Their minds have been blinded they might not see the light of the gospel uh, of the glory of Christ. Okay? Again, uh, I want to look at this in practical terms. How do we apply all of this great theological knowledge that we're gaining into the interactions that we have with those that are around us? I would submit to you, and I am guilty of not doing this in the way that I should, as often as I should, but if their minds are blinded, we need to be just bathing those around us in prayer. Amen? Because it is that that God is taking and, and he responds to our prayers, does he not? He is sovereign and yet he is responsive. You know, the mysteries of God, how he works these things out. But we should be praying for God to enlighten their eyes to these truths that we're looking at. So, All right, so uh, continuing on, you'll see on page four there. Uh, or consider statements in Hebrews chapter one where he, Christ, is referred to as the exact representation of God's nature and also the very radiance of the glory of God. In these passages, Jesus Christ is also seen as the one who created the heavens and the earth and is sustaining the universe by his own power. Uh, Hebrews 1 verse 3, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Uh, I want to go in, actually. I want to take a look at Hebrews and get a little bit more of a uh, perspective on that. If you would, go in and turn and look at Hebrews. And look at Hebrews 1. You'll see the next verse on the handout there, the next verses is Hebrews 1, 10 through 11. Uh, we'll look at that and then I want to go back and kind of read the whole thing in its context. Uh, Hebrews 1, 10 through 11 says, And thou, Lord, in the beginning didst lay the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. They will perish, but thou remainest, and they will all become as an old garment. Okay, so let's go in now. I just want to read through uh, pretty much almost all of Hebrews chapter 1 here. Now, starting in verse 1, it says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And, verse 3, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Okay, so pause there for just a moment. So what is verse 3 really saying, right? So uh, getting this kind of, this context, God spoke long ago through the prophets, now in these last days through his son, then he goes in to really talk about the son. Who is the son? Well, the son is, verse 3, the radiance of his, the father's glory, and the exact representation of his nature. And... On top of that, he upholds all things by the word of his power. 
Okay, so what do we see here? Well, we see that uh, he is the exact representation of God's nature. Okay, so what else can we infer from that other than he is the exact representation of God's nature? Okay, he possesses God's nature. We look back at uh, Colossians, right? The Colossians two nine, right? And that was very clear. We saw that talks about the fact that for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Right, So, looking at these two together, we see that he is the radiance of the glory of God and that he is indeed the representation of God exactly. Okay, Beyond that, he is also upholding all things. Okay, Remember the verses that we've looked at that talk about the fact that through Christ, creation came, and in Christ, all of these things are sustained? This speaks again of the omnipotence of God. Okay? Who else but God could uphold all things? No one. Okay, so very, very clear. Uh, continuing on, you'll see here uh, in, uh, let's see, tail end of verse 3. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he inherited a more excellent name than they. Okay, so now the writer of Hebrews starts pulling out and saying uh, this, this kind of contrast between the person of Christ and angelic beings. Okay? Christ is infinitely better and infinitely higher than created angelic beings. Okay? It is, um, it is uh, searching for the right words, uh, inflammatory. It is um, just uh, utter folly to say that Jesus Christ is a created angelic being. That is just from the pit of hell. Yeah, you've got to deny Hebrews if we look at that. Okay, so continuing on, uh, we see here, uh, verse 5, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. Okay, uh, is it proper and right for angels to be worshiping anything other than God himself? This is a, a big problem for those who would say that Christ is you know, some kind of higher angelic being. Because if angels are now worshiping someone or something other than God, then we have a huge problem. Okay? And all of the angels indeed worship Christ. Why? Because he is God incarnate. Okay, he is God. So continuing, verse 7. Of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Okay, Christ holds a very unique position okay he indeed holds the only position of the second person in the godhead so continuing on and you lord in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands they will perish but you remain and they all will become old like a garment and like a mantle you will roll them up like a garment they will also be changed but you are the same and your years will not come to an end verse 13 but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Okay? He goes in, uh, verse 14 talks about, you know, um, a bit about this kind of angelic uh, comparison as well, right? Angels have a very distinct role, but it is certainly not the role of Christ. Okay? There is an important distinction to make there. He is above all created things. Uh, in this particular passage, You'll see here, he speaks of Christ as being the one through whom creation was made. So pre-existence and omnipotence in verse 2. Then, that he is the exact copy or representation of God. So we see now the divine nature laid out in Hebrews 1.3. Then, that he returned to his place at the Father's right hand, right? Because we saw earlier that that's where he was pre-existent in the same glory that the Father had. Then his superiority and preeminence over angelic beings. Verse 4. Note also in this passage the great pains the author takes, of course, led by the Holy Spirit, 
to contrast how God speaks of Christ versus how God speaks of angels and other created beings. Incidentally, the author of Hebrews then draws a glorious balance of Jesus' condescension in chapter 2, which you saw in verse 9, uh, as he speaks of Christ being made a little lower of, than the angels for a little while so that the plan of salvation might be accomplished according to God's eternal plan. Okay? So if we read this entire you know, first part of Hebrews in its context, we see now that here we have Christ. Chapter 1, Christ is above all, right? He is, um, you know, creation is made through him. He is the image of the invisible God. He sustains all things. Then we get into verse 2 and it says, but for a little while, right, we have the condescension of Christ, which Sean's going to talk about in in coming weeks here, um, about the condescension, Christ humbling himself, taking the form of a man that the plan of salvation might be accomplished. Um, Just glorious truths. Okay, so, uh, is that making sense so far? Okay, good. Uh, The New Testament, in many places, makes explicit statements about the fact that Jesus is the one through whom the world was made, describing him as the very creator of all things. Hebrews 1-2, we just saw the last days uh, that he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. Christ is creator. Hebrews 2.10, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Okay? So, through whom are all things, uh, of course, speaking of Christ, and it is in him that the perfection of our salvation comes. Amen? Uh, 1 Corinthians 8.6, Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. So here we have, you know, God the Father, God the Son, and speaking of, of the, the, the nature of uh, their two beings, the fact that we exist, we exist through Christ and that he sustains us, And if we consider that in light of our position as those who are, if indeed we are, saved by God, isn't it comforting to know that it is in Christ that we exist? Can can we ever lose that? Can that ever be taken from us? Is there anything in all of creation, heights, depths, principalities, that can separate us from that love if we are indeed in the eternal God? Certainly not. Glorious truths. You know, there were times in my life where I did not understand that. And uh, they were very difficult times for me when I was much younger and struggling with this and thinking about, you know, what is this? And I'll be honest with you. Um, and my wife and I have had a lot of conversation about this this last week. You know, those times I did not have an understanding, uh, a biblical understanding of the nature of Christ. I didn't know these things as in depth as I do now. Lord is so gracious to us. And it's because of that. It's because we don't, if we don't have an understanding of the true uh, nature of Christ, of the nature of God, we can't have that kind of, um, that kind of confidence that we are, if we are in him, we are in him. That's the end of the story. So, uh, you know, there are those who, who ask about or comment, you know, why do we go and why do we study these things? Why do you waste your time looking into all these you know, big fancy theological terms that you can't spell. Well, <coughs> certainly, you know, you can get in and you can spend a lot of time in these things, um, but it is so worthwhile as we understand them, as the Lord reveals these truths to us, because it's out of that knowledge that our confidence grows, right? We have a greater trust in the Lord. Um, so these are, these are not just, uh, you know, big words that we're looking at. These affect our lives directly. So, uh, continuing on there, these texts which speak of Jesus as creator also describe the extent of his creation being universal. His work of creation includes everything that has come into being. Okay? So here's the, here's the distinction that we're making right here. Okay? We're going to have to wrap up. Uh, the distinction that we're making here is, above the verses we looked at, these are talking about the fact that um, through Christ the world was made, right? Christ is the creator, okay? So we've established that. The verses we're now looking at are talking more about the nature of that creation, 
Okay, so we've established he's the creator. Now, what does this creation that that has been wrought through Christ, what does it look like? So John 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning. And then verse 3, all things came into being by him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Okay, so again, as we ascribe these things to Christ, we are now saying that he is indeed the creator and here's the nature of his creation. All things. Nothing that has been created um, has been... Um, is it, yeah, nothing that's come into being has, has come into being outside of him. He's created everything. Okay? Consider the extent of the creation, the, the creative power of, of Christ the Son. Colossians 1.6 continues on. By him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. Okay. So, the omnipotent power of Christ is far-reaching, just uh, doesn't do it justice. It is all-encompassing. It is everything. Um, you'll see there, actually, there's a, uh, a quote by Grudem uh, towards the end here. And I'm going to go ahead and leave you all um, with that, and then we're going to wrap real quick here. Uh, Grudem talks about um, this, uh, this idea of Christ referring to himself as the Son of Man. Okay? And kind of the, the final thought here is um, that Christ, of course, many times refers to himself as the Son of Man. You'll see further evidence of, uh, of claims to deity can be found in the fact that Jesus calls himself Son of Man. This title is used 84 times in the four Gospels, but only by Jesus and only to speak of himself. In the rest of the New Testament, the phrase, the Son of Man, with the definite article, the, is used only once in Acts 7.56, where Stephen refers to Christ as the Son of Man. This unique term has as its background the vision in Daniel 7, where Daniel saw one like the Son of Man who came to the Ancient of Days and was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. Okay? Again, speaking to the nature of who Christ is. It is striking that this Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, Daniel 7.13, this passage clearly speaks of someone who had heavenly origin and who was given eternal rule over the whole world. The high priest did not miss the point of this passage when Jesus said, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The reference to Daniel 7:13-14 was unmistakable. And the high priest and his council knew that Jesus was claiming to be the eternal ruler of heavenly origin spoke of in Daniel's vision. So what do you think their response was? <laughs> Immediately they said, He has uttered blasphemy. He deserves death. Here, Jesus finally made explicit and strong claims to eternal world rule that were earlier hinted at in his frequent use of the title, the Son of Man, to apply to himself. Okay? Those who say that Christ himself never claimed this, do not understand the scripture. They have not read it. Okay? So uh, as just a quick recap of what we looked at today, we'll kind of start from the bottom and go back up, right? Jesus himself made these claims. He said that he was fully divine. He had deity. We also see uh, throughout the rest of the New Testament as well as the Old Testament that both the new and the old speak of Christ as the Messiah as both divine as well as human. We're going to talk about humanity in the coming weeks. Sean's going to handle all that stuff. Okay? But uh, these, are, these are glorious truths. Okay? And they're foundational for our faith. So uh, I appreciate you all bearing with me and uh, allowing me to come and, and fill in for Sean. And uh, it is such a blessing to be able to look into the Word. Amen? All right. Let's pray real quick and we'll go upstairs. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this morning. Lord, for your word as we've looked into it. Lord, and we have seen so clearly the truths, Lord, that are just 
Lord, all over the place. Lord, we look in the Old Testament, we look in the New Testament, and Lord, we see your entire plan of salvation laid out, Lord, with, with beauty, Lord, with majesty, with clarity. Lord, we do acknowledge this morning that you are, uh, Lord, a triune God. Lord, that Jesus the Son indeed did humble himself for a little while to become a man. Lord, to come and, uh, Lord, live a perfect life that we certainly could not have lived. And yet, Lord, in his divinity, that, Lord, he could die for our sins. Lord, he could pay the price that we could not. Lord, these are glorious truths. And we thank you for the understanding that you've granted to us. We ask you, Lord, that you would continue to reveal yourself to us each day more and more as we look to your word. Lord, help us to be faithful stewards of your word and look to it often, Lord. We love you and it's in your precious son's name. Amen.